Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Perhaps one of the most sobering passages in the Bible is the one that speaks on the unpardonable sin. You guys ever heard of that phrase before, the unpardonable sin? Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. Okay, the unpardonable sin... um, And there are many different standings regarding this sin, but before we discuss that, we have to answer the question, what exactly is is the unpardonable sin, and is it possible for Christians to commit the unpardonable sin? So if you can take your Bibles with me real quick, this is just kind of a launching pad to get into our study of Jeremiah, and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 here, it discusses that. It discusses it a few different times in the Gospels, but specifically, most graphically probably, here in Mark chapter 3. In verses 22 through 29, what we see in in Mark chapter 3 is an interesting account that occurs between Jesus and the scribes. The scribes accused Jesus of being a devil, and they attributed his works to being uh, one of the devil. And in response to this, if you you look there in verses 28 through 29, Jesus says this, and it's probably read in your Bible to indicate that it's Jesus talking. In uh, Mark 3, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now it's interesting because um, it is possible to blaspheme against God, Okay. Uh, matter of fact, and, and you've heard people say that phrase before, right? They say, a lot of times they say it without even thinking, oh my God, right? That's, that's actually blasphemy because you're using God's name flippantly. So it, it, people do blaspheme against God, sometimes not even thinking about it, and that is forgivable. Matter of fact, people blaspheme against Jesus Christ himself, and that is forgivable. You think about him being on the cross, right? And they're obviously accusing him of being somebody that he's not, which was surely not the Son of God. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But there's a difference when somebody blasphemes against the Holy Ghost. If they are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then they are really looking down the barrels of hell, more or less. And so the question then is, here, what is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Whenever someone deliberately and disrespectfully slanders the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and pointing to the lordship and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, they negate the possibility of present or future forgiveness of sins. The reason being... That person has fully rejected the only basis of God's salvation. So as I mentioned earlier, I didn't mention this yet, but if you look at the eternal security, it is not possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin. That's not possible. Because the Bible says that once you, well, a couple of different reasons. Once you receive Christ, you are always in Christ, right? You're always part of the family. But a Christian that is a genuine Christian will not blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. So then the question is, is it possible on this side of eternity, because if you have the way between God, no sin is is too big for God to forgive, versus, okay, the unpardonable sin, is it possible for someone on this side of eternity to basically seal their fate to hell, more or less, by blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Now, there are many different commentators that take multiple different stands on this, but the only way that we can be sure of this is when somebody actually dies, their 
see, uh, their, their fate has been sealed and their decision that they made on this side of eternity. So whether they chose to reject Jesus Christ or receive Jesus Christ, their decision has been sealed. Now, at what time then, and the scripture does seem to indicate that there is a time in which God's grace is, and I, and I mean this respectfully, more or less worn out on someone. In other words, he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And to the point where somebody continues to reject, 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 he says, okay, fine. And he turns them over to a reprobate mind like Romans chapter 1 talks about. But we don't know at what point that is. That's not our job to figure out. So I say all that to say this. There does seem to be a point in which God says enough is enough. And so we see here in Jeremiah chapter 14. So if you could take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 14, that God indicates that enough is enough. What we're going to see in this particular passage here this evening is really this conversation again that occurs between Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the children of Judah to God, and them pretending more or less to repent, and God saying, listen, too late, your fate's been sealed. Okay, so in Jeremiah chapter 14, at this particular point in the narrative, God is through with the children of Judah, and it's kind of been the case the previous chapters as well. What God did is he raised up Jeremiah, as we understand, to be the prophet of Judah to let them know of God's impending judgment. So far in this account, we've seen this back and forth dialogue between God and the children of Judah through Jeremiah. God has told Jeremiah on a couple of different occasions, two specifically, that it would not be worth his time or effort to pray for their behalf because God has already made up his mind. Their fate's already been sealed because they then in and of themselves have hardened their heart towards God. So as we enter Jeremiah chapter 14, we see another conversation that occurs between Jeremiah and God. In fact, there are four total messages that the prophet Jeremiah delivers that stretch from Jeremiah chapter 14 to Jeremiah chapter 17. Four different ones. And each of those messages are interspersed with these conversations that Jeremiah has with God. So it's like he delivers a message to the people and then he has a conversation with God saying, listen, God, you want to think about this? Can we, can we have a discussion here? Can we talk about this? And it stretches all throughout these chapters, 14 through 17. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks here, actually, we do not have uh, this um, midweek praise service next week. We do not have that. The Good Friday service is taking the place of that. So we're going to take two weeks from now to continue to discuss this. But for the sake of time, what we're going to focus on here this evening is just the information that occurs within Jeremiah chapter 14. And then in two weeks, we're going to observe the next two messages and exchanges. And then we'll conclude with that final message in three weeks. But our goal through this study is to examine the point in which God says enough is enough. The point in which God moves from his forgiving attitude to his action of judgment. Okay, so the title of tonight's message is a message regarding the drought. So if you have your Bibles in Jeremiah chapter 14, that's where we're going to start, our start here. The particular moment, actually in, in, in verses 1 through 6 here, you really see uh, this, this first exchange here. In other words, this, this first, uh, really the context that's being laid here. And, and it says here in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. Now, some of your versions probably say drought. Dearth is another word for drought. Never heard of that word before, uh, but it's here in the King James. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. Now, just to kind of give you a context here, 
The fact that they are in a drought is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy, or in other words, of them breaking the covenant. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 through 19, it says, And after all this, if you do not obey me, again, this goes back to that Mosaic covenant, right? It was that conditional covenant that if the people did not choose to obey God, then God would remove himself and his presence from them. And part of that was being a drought. It says, after all of this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Again, it's talking about a drought and then a famine that is consequent of the drought. That's where they are now. They are in the middle of a drought. And so what this drought is doing, and unfortunate, well, I should say Fortunately, not unfortunately, over here in the West, we've never experienced anything like that. We've had droughts. We've had periods of rain. North Carolina, I don't think, has ever had a drought based upon the past three years. It's been raining a lot, and we're grateful for that. But there's never been a full-out drought on the, uh, that we've experienced here in the West. But maybe a very, very small, just a small blip of, of maybe how we can explain this is if you remember last year, like a year ago, exactly, when everybody was scared of COVID, and rightfully so, because they didn't know what was going to happen. And so they went and bought toilet paper. And they actually did a psychological study on that. Do you guys ever read anything about that? Basically, they said the reason why people were buying toilet paper is because they knew they needed to do something in order to protect themselves and cope with the fact that there's a pandemic. So somehow in their mind, or somebody's mind, they thought that toilet paper was the necessary means as to which they needed in order to protect themselves. And so that became a really a crisis in and of itself, where people were like, I need to get toilet paper so I am protecting and providing for my family. And so everybody went out and bought toilet paper. Well, now the fact that there was no toilet paper left made people even more panicky towards getting toilet paper, so they went out and bought it because it was their way of coping with the pandemic. That's what some of the psychologists said. And so if you were to think about this, and then also the issue with the chicken within the stores, right? Everybody running out of food. Do you guys remember this? Anybody having this issue where they couldn't get any food? And it wasn't that we had less food. It wasn't that people were eating more. The issue occurred because people weren't going out to eat to restaurants. And so all the food distributors had to shift the food that they were sending to restaurants to the grocery stores in order to compensate for the changes in the people's shopping. And so if you remember last year, there was a scare that went on with the food shortages and, and people were saying you can only buy one pack of chicken or one pack of meat, whatever. That is a very, very small, just a tiny little uh, blip of some of the craziness that was going on with this drought. Matter of fact, he describes it. Look at verse 3. It says, And their nobles have sent their little ones to the water. In other words, the people sent their ones to the water. They came to the pits, and they found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed, and they were confounded, and they covered their heads. And then in verse 4, it says, The ground was chapped. And again, it says, The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. The reason why it was saying they were ashamed and covered their heads is that was a way in which they showed themselves as being ashamed. If they did something that they were not proud of, they would cover their heads with a hood or with some, uh, some sort of covering. And so they were doing that because they were ashamed of what they brought upon themselves through the drought. Look at verse 5. He's saying that the hind, in other words, the doe, is calved in the field and forsook it. In other words, there was, the drought was so bad and the famine was so bad that the mother doe literally went against her mother instincts and left her calf there in the field to go search for food, in essence, leaving it to starve. That's how bad it was. 
And then it goes on and says in verse uh, 6 that the donkeys or the wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. In other words, the wild donkeys were panting, standing there because they could not find water. It was a horrible, horrible situation. It was so bad that it finally caused the people to realize, uh, maybe we were doing something that we shouldn't have been doing. And so they respond back with asking God to forgive them. And so you see now in verse 7, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is actually speaking on behalf of the people. And so what you're going to see here is Jeremiah taught, having a conversation with the Lord, but he's representing the people. He says in verse 7, and verses 7 through 9, you want to outline this, it's actually the first plea from Jeremiah, verses 7, 8, and 9. And then God then responds. Uh, 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 responds in verses 10 through 12. And so you see this pattern here. You see Jeremiah's plea, God's response. Jeremiah's plea, God's response. And so beginning in verse 7, Jeremiah says, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. O the hope of Israel, in verse 8. That's a, that is a term of endearment that is referring to God. So that's very important to, to focus on that there. He's referring to God. And then he goes on to say, The Savior thereof in time of trouble, Why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? So now what he's saying here is two things that are happening here in verse 7. He's saying in verse 7 through the phrase, Do it for thy name's sake. In essence, they're basically saying, Listen, if God, you do not... Um, Show your grace towards us for our sake. At least do it for your name's sake. In other words, God, your reputation of you being a gracious and loving God is on the line because of how you're treating us. This is what Jeremiah is saying to God. Okay, this is his plea. He's, he's just giving it all out to God. Then he says in verse 8, the hope of Israel, he turns it on its side then. He says, why should you then be a stranger in the land as a wayfaring man that turneth aside for a night? Basically what he's doing is he's painting God's treatment towards his own people as a stranger that is going into a strange land, looking at all the decay and all the destruction and not really having much care for it. It would be like us. Now, obviously, being a human beings, we do have a compassion. But if I was to go to Seattle during the time where they had, uh, oh, man, I, I don't, when they basically did their, um, oh, what was that thing? What was it called? Chaz. Chaz. Yeah, basically what they were saying, it was they, like the police are allowed in this area. So I'm not from Seattle, but you know some people are from that area. I have no personal connection to Seattle. So if I was to go there, I would be sad for what was happening, but it wouldn't really impact me because I have no personal connection there. It's basically what they're saying about God. They're saying, God, the way you're treating us, it's like a stranger that's going into an area, looking at all the destruction and not really being impacted, God. Do you really care for us? He goes on and says in verse 9, Why shouldest thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? In other words, he's comparing him to a warrior that does not have the strength to save or to win the battle. Okay, he's really, he's really going at God now, saying, God, you're not even a strong warrior here. Thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Oh, now all of a sudden, they want to be claimed as gods, right? God, we're called by your name. Where are you? Okay, where were you in the previous hundred, you know, several years when God was pursuing you and saying, listen, turn your back, turn, your, turn back to me, turn back to me, and you ignored it. Now, all of a sudden now, because of how bad this world is and how bad this drought is, you want me to come back to you. That's Jeremiah's plea. Now it's time for God to respond. 
So God responds in verse 10. Thus saith the Lord unto his people. Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and revisit or visit their sins. In other words, he's saying, listen, you like to go around and and, and commit adultery by serving other gods and by worshiping other deities. And so therefore, I'm going to remember your sins. In other words, I am going to remember what you did. And therefore, you're going to receive the judgment for that. And so don't try to pretend that all of a sudden now you're my people when you didn't act like that several hundred years or several years before now. He says in verse 11, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. That's the third time now that God told Jeremiah to stop praying for him. Now, I don't want you to envision this for a second, right? It's like, it's like you have your boss that is, that, is, that is really coming down hard on a certain employee because they're knuckleheads and they're not listening. And you being a friend to that employee is always vouching for that employee, right, to the boss. So you're vouching for them over and over and over again. And eventually the boss is saying, listen, stop sticking up for them. Okay, they're not doing anything for you. They're the ones who keep messing it up. So it's not, it's, it does you no good for you to stick up for them to me because my mind's already been made up because they've already uh, uh, done the last straw. It's basically what God is saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, stop sticking up for him. In other words, stop praying for him. It's not going to do any good. My mind's already been made up. In verse 12, it really kind of brings it down here. It's when they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. In other words, that's a reference to the Babylonians and their destruction would also bring famine and pestilence. So you read verse 12, and you're like, God, man, you're hard. It's not that God wouldn't accept their fasting. God wouldn't accept their fasting because he knew they were doing it out of a hypocritical heart. They were only wanting to change because they were sorry for the punishment that they were receiving, not because they were truly repentant. It's like a kid gets in trouble, right? And they know they've been caught, and so they apologize to the parent. They're not really sorry for what they did. They're just sorry that they got caught. See, God knows their heart. So what does this show us in all of this? What, what do we see here exactly through this response? God can see right through the lip service of man. And it's funny that we, I'm going to be honest with you, I struggle with this in my prayer life, right? I pray one thing, but I'm like, God, I don't really know why I'm praying this because in my heart, you know it, and I really struggle with this area. And so I don't want to try to pray to you to try to pretend I'm wanting something when I know you know my heart anyway, right? God sees right through it. You can't pull anything. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes, so to speak. So as we transition to verse 13, after hearing this, God then answers, or Jeremiah then answers God's answers with another plea. In verse 13, he then has to shift the blame. He's got an issue with the, Jer- with the people of Judah. So Jeremiah expresses it to God, clearly didn't go anywhere. God says, I'm not going to listen to him because I know it's going to be out of a false, uh, false heart there. So Jeremiah then says, O oh Lord, Behold, the prophets say unto thee, You shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So what's happening? Jeremiah is like, Oh, but God, you remember those prophets? You allowed those prophets to fool them, and so really it was the prophets' faults and bringing the people far away that really caused them to be confused. Again, Jeremiah trying to get God to believe something uh, that God's just not going to believe. So then God responds to them, and he says in verses 14 and 15, he addresses the issue of the prophets directly. 
And he says, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name, and I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and deceit of their hearts. In other words, there was three things that were happening here. They prophesied, and actually there was four things. They prophesied and lying in the Lord's name. They used false visions. They used worthless divinations. In other words, that's the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. And they spoke deceit. God says in verse 15, specifically, Thus saith the Lord concerning prophets that prophesy in my name, I sent them not. He recognizes the fact that, yes, I know there's false prophets. Clearly they weren't for me because they weren't preaching the truth. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land, but by sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. So God addresses those prophets. This is Jeremiah, I hear you. They're not getting by with it. They're going to die with sword and famine. They have their punishment coming. But then God doesn't allow that to be an excuse for the people. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. He now God shifts his focus to the people. He says, And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. So one of the things, the first thing he says here. What he's, what he's actually painting the picture here is that the destruction of Babylon will be so intense, so great, which we've talked about over the past several weeks, that they will be killed and they will be tossed out into the streets and they will not be buried. To us, it's like, man, it's kind of gross. That was actually extremely disrespectful and dishonorable to the Jews to be unburied or to not be buried after they, after they, were died, or after they uh, died. And so he says that they are going to suffer humiliation. In verse 17, Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. In other words, God's saying, I have to punish them, but I don't relish in that. I don't receive joy from that. There are tears that are running down my face because I am heartbroken for my people. Shows the empathy on, the half, on behalf of God. Then he says, for the virgin daughter of my people. That virgin daughter there is in reference to Judah by the fact that Judah was never underneath captivity. They were not, ever, never underneath bondage at, until this particular point. So that's why he refers to them as the virgin daughter. A people broken with a great breach with a very grievous bow blow. If I go forth, in verse 18, the field, then behold the slain with the sword. And if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with a famine. Yea, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land they know not, in reference to Babylon. So what does this particular response from God show us here specifically? God does not accept excuse making and blame shifting. Jeremiah tried to blame the fact that the people walked away from God on the false prophets. You walked away from God, God, or God, they walked away from you because the false prophets led them there. They are going to be held accountable for their actions. If I ended up, and I pray that I don't, but if I ended up preaching a false gospel, I am held accountable for those actions. But so are you in believing and accepting that. There is a level of accountability with every single person. So we can't shift the blame onto somebody else because we are all responsible for our own actions. So after hearing this second response, what Jeremiah does in verses 19 through 20 is he gives another plea. Since he was commanded by God not to pray on their behalf, Jeremiah then changes his narrative now to include himself with the people. He says in these verses, he uses the pronouns we, us, they, and them. 
Look at Jeremiah's next plea in verses 19 down to verses, uh, verse 22. And that's where we're going to stop here for this evening. Jeremiah says, Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hast thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us and there was no healing for us? We looked for peace and there was no good. And for the time of healing and behold trouble, we acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquities of our fathers. We have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Again, he's using that for thy name's sake. Don't do it for us. Do it for your name because your reputation is on the line. It's as if he's negotiating with God. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. He's reminding God of the conditional covenant. When in reality, they've already broken God's covenant. And so God is just fulfilling the end of the bargain, so to speak. You broke the covenant, so therefore I'm going to deliver judgment to you. Verse 22, are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. That's the conclusion of the first message here regarding the drought. What he says in verse 22 it's like, God, we need rain bad. We need it desperately. Our crops are dying. Our cattle is dying. In essence, we're dying because we can't get the food that we need. Sickness and health is, 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 sickness is rising and health is, is decreasing. Good health. So God, what do, we, what do we do? If we look to the Gentiles and their gods, we know they can't bring rain. We know they have no power. So what Jeremiah says in verse 22 is, God, we recognize the fact that you're the only one that can bring rain. So therefore, God, we plead with you to bring rain, and we will wait upon you. That was Jeremiah's plea. And that final plea within this section here concludes that first message regarding the drought. 